<laughs> we should have a Nick. You should get a button. And it should be frisbee golf. A button that you could just push that just alerts health. us to the fact that you're going to edit this out. What? Because it's public health. We should do frisbee golf. Why? Because <laughs> it's a hippie profession. Come on, let's be honest. <laughs> Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by vacuum cleaner settings. Why is there more than one setting on a vacuum cleaner? You turn it on, it sucks things out of the carpet. Why do I need more than one setting? High, medium, low. It's got to like puree versus whip. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to do one thing. I wanted to suck up everything as strongly as possible. But well, you, you don't want to use high on a shag carpet, which I'm I'm sure you have a lot of in your home. I Does have that tons of... Oh, yes, you want to... Right. Well, obviously it's, I have shag carpets, but they're on the walls. So, <laughs> you know. Is that in your special room? <laughs> you should still vacuum those occasionally. Oh, really? Yeah, probably. Oh, Anyway, I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health, and I am here with Chris Gill from the Department of Global Health. Hello, Matthew. And Jennifer Ryder from the Department of Epidemiology. Hello. And we are back for our first show of 2020, even though it's not the first show that is going to be released in 2020. In fact, I think we just released one today, right, Nick? Nick is giving me the peace sign. So I think that means two shows will be released before this one, but it's our first recording of 2020, and that is what matters. As a reminder, can you go over to the Population Health Exchange website and check out all of our great lifelong learning programs and tools? Anything, Nick, I'm supposed to be telling the good people this week about the Summer Institute or the Winter Institute or the Fall Classic or none of the above. So now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to talk about a study on quality of care uh, for maternal and neonatal outcomes worldwide. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we'll talk about a paper. Well, it's not a paper. It's a letter against open science, you could say. It's really against open access to publications. And what an ill-conceived idea that might have been and why they might have done it. I have some thoughts on that. And then uh, we'll have our amazing and amusing. So let's get into segment one where we're going to talk about an article that looked at the impact of quality of care on maternal and neonatal outcomes. So this was a global health study published in PLOS Medicine, and it was entitled Estimating the Global Impact of Poor Quality of Care on Maternal and Neonatal Outcomes in 81 Low- and Middle-Income Countries, a Modeling Study. It was by first author Victoria Chu of the Department of International Health at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. So I was away and couldn't really figure out the press on this one. When I last checked, there wasn't a ton of press on this, so I didn't, I didn't, I didn't bother with this one. So we'll, we'll we'll skip the press headlines on this one, and we will jump right into what they found. So Jen, tell us tell us what this study was all about. Sure. So this paper was really written based on the idea that, particularly in low and middle income countries, that quality of care is really an essential piece of the puzzle and, and should probably be addressed prior to efforts to increase utilization. 
So the aim of this study was to estimate the global impact of poor quality of care in countries where the disease burden is very high and there's substantial elevated morbidity and, and mortality. So to get at this, the authors used a modeling approach to estimate the global consequences of delivering quality care to those who were already seeking care between 2016 and 2020 Mm -hmm. in each of the countries that they included. So they sampled 81 low and middle income countries that represent the majority of the global burden that's currently being tracked by the countdown to the 2030 sustainable development goals. Mm -hmm. So these 81 countries reflect 89% of the neonatal deaths worldwide, 95% of the maternal deaths worldwide, and 87% of all stillbirths globally. The model that they used, I'm not going to pretend I really understand anything about it we'll at get, all. We'll get back to that because okay, I'm, I'm, I'm in the, the same boat. Okay. The, the yes. List, model. list is the acronym. So it stands for the Live Save Tool. What we do know is that it's a linear and deterministic model that's used to estimate the impact of improved quality of care for these particular health interventions that they they selected. I actually spent an hour looking at their online videos about the list tool this you morning. You did? Yeah, because I was really curious to know about more, more Were about they this. helpful? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's very I, I suppose I should have done that. Well, so maybe Chris will be able to fill in some okay. of the details when we get to it. Their primary outcome was the proportion of the population in need of a particular healthcare intervention who actually received that intervention. And then that was used to determine impact, which was defined by a reduction in the number of deaths or adverse outcomes like stillbirths, which were estimated from country-specific models and then aggregated into this global total of events. The country-specific models for each of those 81 low- and middle-income countries had inputs taken from national surveys. So they needed to have some baseline estimates. So to get that data, they used linkage between health facility and population-level health survey data to estimate the utilization of 19 interventions. And those were selected because the information on whether or not the country was ready to provide that intervention at a given health facility was was available from these uh, surveys and health facility assessments. So baseline coverage was estimated by multiplying the availability of everything that would be essential for implementing that intervention by the proportion of people seeking care or the number of births in order to determine how high the intervention coverage could be, taking into account both missing components of this intervention and low care seeking in in a particular area. So one important thing to note is while 81 different countries were included in the analysis, there were only 17 where they were able to do this data linkage. And basically, the remaining countries were all just assigned the sample median. Right. And I I don't know if I was really clear. All of the interventions are sort of neonatal, childbirth, prenatal in in flavor. For each country, a country-specific target was set for 2020 based on the reported utilization. So for instance, women who attended at least four antenatal visits based on the population survey were determined to be the percentage of pregnant women who should have received these evidence-based antenatal interventions during a given antenatal visit. 
So what they found is that, first of all, the levels of utilization were pretty low, but they had a a large range. Mm -hmm. So there was an average of 60% of women who attended at least four antenatal visits, but across the different countries that ranged from 6% to 96%. 66% on average of the deliveries occurred in a health facility, which is another one of their outcomes, but that also ranged from 9% in some countries to 99% in others. Using these low levels of utilization and then applying them to 2020, but changing the quality of the care that Mm -hmm. women received, they found a 28% total decrease across all the 81 countries could be achieved for maternal deaths. So that relates to a reduction of about 70,000 to 92,000 maternal deaths. They could achieve a 28% decrease in neonatal deaths, which is somewhere in the 600 to 750,000 range. And they could achieve a 22% decrease in stillbirths. So that's about a half a million stillbirths. Hmm. Again, just changing the quality of care, not the number of interventions that they performed. And finally, they found that interventions at or, or around the time of childbirth had the biggest impact in terms of, of reduction in, in mortality or adverse events. So overall, it seems they conclude that there, there is a large role for improved quality of care in neonatal and maternal mortality reductions. I thought it might be worth just to to note some of the kinds of interventions that we're talking about here. So we're talking about things like tetanus vaccination, intermittent preventive treatment for malaria, syphilis detection, iron supplementation, hypertensive disorder treatment, diabetes care, malaria care, preeclampsia treatment, clean birth practices, labor and delivery management, neonatal resuscitation, antibiotics, those kinds of things. And not surprisingly, a bunch of of many of these are things that we have focused our careers on. You in particular. I guess that's true. Yeah. But we've worked on a few of them together. We absolutely have. So, all right. So, Chris, let me let me turn this over to you to give us your take, particularly since it sounds like you have done a bit of sleuthing uh, in terms of the model. I will say before I do that I am admittedly a sucker for a, a good modeling study. I really, I don't know why. There's something about, uh, maybe it's because I don't know how to do it, mm-hmm. that it just sounds really cool to me. But- in addition to being a sucker for it and loving them, I also have skepticism going into them because obviously it's, it is, it seems to me in a lot of ways, educated guesswork as opposed to a study that actually identified that we could reduce mortality by this much. So I go into it, you know, sort of mixed. Chris, what's your take? It, sure. So first of all, I, I just wanted to, to give a shout out to Neff Walker. Uh, Neff's yep. uh, one of the the guys who developed the, the the list tool at Hopkins and is a super nice fellow. And is the second author on this study? And is the second author yep. on this study. So if you're listening, Neff, hello. How are you? Happy New Year. So, the, the, you know, the list uh, tool is basically, it, it's a very simple, essentially a very simple model. You sort of input all the parameters to describe, like if you're trying to reduce neonatal mortality, you would like to know what is the proportion of the population in country X that is neonates. And so that's where your starting point is. And then you look at the things that you could do to reduce neonatal mortality, like, you know, neonatal resuscitation. And then you multiply the percentage of the population that is a neonate that actually receives the, you know, the intervention and would need the intervention. That is to say, resuscitating a baby is perfectly fine. It's not 
you know, reduce mortality. So you have to choose babies who need to be resuscitated to resuscitate them. And then you multiply that by the effectiveness of the intervention itself. And so it's each of these. And then eventually you come down with some fraction of what the mortality could be reduced to if you did X at coverage Y in population Z. And so, I mean, essentially you're, you're modeling a population and you're saying, if we did this, if things went exactly as we think they would based on the available evidence, what would right. happen? Right. And so that's where it's a strict, a strictly deterministic model as opposed to a, like a Monte Carlo simulation where there's all sorts of uncertainty built into the model here. It's, it's just, you know, parameter one times two times three times four. So it's a very straightforward model. And I think the, the complicated parts of it are all the inputs and figuring out, yeah. you know, what is agree. the coverage and, you, you know, the coverage would be based on some DHS report, demographic health survey report. And and then modeling the population structure based on DHS data, basically, and, and all of that. And so it, it's it's a um, you know it's, it's kind of a very straightforward, pragmatic, I would say, and I'm using that in the in the most positive way rather than a snarky way like I did last time. Um, <laughs> approach to figuring out like what if you did this, what would your yield be? Now, with all that said, I think I felt that their definition of quality was setting the bar mighty low. For a lot of these interventions, like they, they were not very strict. Like, okay, I'll I'll pull off any any random example here. Pull Sorry. it off into the microphone. Then. <clears throat> pull it off into the microphone. Right. So you know they talk about management of neonatal sepsis. Yep. And so the definition of of quality in terms of their ability to manage neonatal sepsis is the availability of at least one dose of antibiotic, as reported in these in these catchment zones, and that there would be at least one person who is trained on how to do this. And 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 you know to me that seems like that's not a very very strict definition because if they had one dose, that doesn't mean they have two. And that doesn't mean it's adequate. One dose per person, you mean? Uh, let's see where the case management. Here we go. Case management. So, for example, case management of new. We'll start there. Case management of neonatal sepsis and pneumonia with injectable antibiotics is the observed availability of at least one valid and unexpired unit of procaine penicillin or genomycin and ceftriaxone. And I think that's probably a mistake, by the way, on their side. But at least one dose at this facility. The facility at the having facility. a dose. Right, but that is not. You know, a facility is likely to need many doses, and so this is this is not a highly reassuring measure of quality. I would say that they have one, at least one dose of of antibiotic, and at least one person trained on how to use the antibiotic. Now, it doesn't get into will that person recognize the syndrome and act upon it uh, accordingly, which would put in another, you know, correction factor into the list model, which I guess is is a, like, if you want to really get at the quality, I think of quality of care is really all about the competence of the providers, as opposed to just the technical capacity of the facility to deliver it in some perfect hypothetical world. And so the, the aggregate effect of that is that I would say all of their, their, assessments, their, their predictions are probably wildly inflated because they don't actually get at the quality of care delivery, just at the technical capacity in a hypothetical way to deliver care. Wildly inflated, meaning you think that in practice, you wouldn't get the benefits that, that they are purporting to get because if that was what you implemented as your quality intervention, it wouldn't actually be all that 
impressive. Right. Because you then have to correct for, would there be someone, you know, first of all, we, we, they don't, we don't talk about staffing at these facilities. So sure. you can have a facility who has, you know, a, a, a warehouse filled with penicillin and a person who's trained to use the penicillin, but if they're only there from nine to five and the sepsis occurs at five thirty, then it doesn't help. Right. Right. So that has to sort of be built into this. So these, these facilities are generally not actually staffed 24 seven. They're staffed you know, according to some schedule. I mean, I remember the work we did when we were uh, doing LUNESP in uh, in Zambia. The, Lune- the- LUNESP is a study that Chris ran, that Chris uh, was the PI of, which was which, at neonatal resuscitation. And we published together, yep. right? You, you did some of the statistics on that. So, you know, when we, when we surveyed many of the health facilities, we found that all of them nominally were trained with a skilled birth attendant. But in reality, the skilled birth attendants went home at 5 p.m. And in many places, it was the environmental manager i.e. the janitor who was delivering babies at night oh, because there was no one else. Wow. Okay, oh, so boy. that is a, a practical difference from the hypothetical, which is what they're talking about here. So I would say that these numbers, their estimates of lives saved are inflated considerably okay. because they do not deal with the human resources aspects of quality. Yep. Okay. So that's a limitation. Fair enough. Fair enough. Other, so, other than that, I have no major quibble. The, the, the other one thing I'm going to pass it over to Jen. The other thing major quibble. That, that they really don't address is the, is, is the affordability of any of these inefficiencies. Sure. So Which I think is a, is, oh, is a problem. We're in a cost-free zone here. It's all as if, as if there was infinite resources. You can do everything on the list. But actually, there are profound limitations yeah. on what you can, in fact, do. Yeah. No, I think that's a problem, not in the sense of it's a problem for their study. It's a problem that we have to solve if we're going to be able to implement things. Which, of course, they acknowledge in their yep. discussion. Yep. So they're yep. not blind to this. Yeah. I mean, also acknowledged, I think, are is the fact that it's really important to collect the kind of data that can measure quality, and, and that's not often often done, and that's another thing that could be improved upon. But I guess in terms of, you know, not in addressing staffing and the training of the, of the care providers, it seems like no matter how trained the care providers are, if there isn't at least one dose of the antibiotic at that facility, it doesn't really matter. So right. these, these seem like I don't know, the minimum set of criteria or or resources that need to be available to, to perform these. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So I said in the beginning when I introduced this that I go into these things, I'm both really interested and curious, but also skeptical. I'm interested and curious, but I mean, part of me feels like how much of this is kind of just common sense approach to modeling this stuff out. And it's not, it's not, there's nothing super sophisticated going on in the modeling. It's really, I mean, a souped up back of the envelope type calculation. I could be totally wrong about that. But the part of the reason why I get that impression is because I got to the end of the method section and I didn't know what they did. Mm-hmm. And I, I find that problematic. Now, I don't, I don't, I don't say that to, to criticize the authors. I, I'm not sure there was a way that they could have explained it. And that all probably has to go into a technical appendix. I didn't find the appendix, but I'm, there probably was one and I just didn't see it. But you know how you go through all these calculations, I think, is is something that would really help me understand what they actually did to come away with these numbers. But let's say we take it, the model itself at face value. My concern comes in around a couple of things. The first one is it all comes down to assumptions, and the assumptions are based on data. And you know we have enough trouble trying to figure out the 
just descriptive epidemiology on these populations, let alone the size of the effects of these interventions, knowing full well that the actual effects of any intervention, even if we got the estimate right, is going to vary from population to population for all kinds of reasons. To be able to then summarize that starts to feel like we're compounding the different limitations of each of these studies. That's not a reason not to do it because we need this. Inf- we need we need our best available evidence to make decisions. And so I don't know how you would do this better, but it seems to be one thing that's that's really missing is how do you capture the uncertainty in these estimates? Well, and especially since most of the countries weren't actually providing their own data. And I, I wonder, I don't know, I, I wonder what the advantage of, of doing that was. Why include you know, 60 some countries where you actually don't have the linkage mm-hmm. you need mm-hmm. in order to, why not just study the, the ones you do, that you do. And I, I mean, part of the reason is because then you can aggregate the total numbers into something much larger and, and maybe the, the countries where that data isn't available are the ones that could potentially be most, most impacted by improved quality. I'm not sure, but I don't know. But but that decision to me, that bothered me a bit. Yeah. So another thing, Chris, that you said was that you you saw the measures of quality as being fairly m- modest, I think would be a, a way to describe it, that the bar was set quite low. But it seems to me that they, if I understood it correctly, they're assuming that you would get the benefit of a much more robust intervention. Am I right about that? Because you were saying that you think that if they were to implement these quality measures, you wouldn't actually see as big of a reduction as they're estimating because you would actually need to do more. So then, I mean, what are they estimating the effect of? What is the intervention that they're proposing? I, I think what they were talking about was the the combined implementation of all of these uh, 19 separate interventions at, at the scale. Level. At the minimum level, but at scale. Doesn't that imply, though, that if we were to, if we were to implement them at, at a minimum scale, we would get this what they what i would term as a large benefit if you were to actually implement even even more stringent criteria for quality measures you'd get even better reductions even Wouldn't larger you reductions get, you mean if hmm, yes if so, we made sure there was you know round the clock care and and true competence and tons the, of stock in and the know, diagnostic acumen of the staff was assessed in some way yeah, so that they would, you could prove that they actually knew what they were doing wouldn't you expect then you'd get an even greater benefit you you I, would and that was sort of my point in reverse i guess is that i i feel like they have an over mm, they are okay so if if you could whew, uh, well, let, let, let me let me let me just try something. So the, the intervention, if if we're right, if you're right that the intervention they're proposing is really these minimal indicators, just you know, a moderate amount of effort, and that is what they're modeling. You're getting a big benefit according to their results. According, you know, if you reach this minimum standard, what which we're saying is probably too optimistic a definition of. Yeah. Of, of capacity. But even but again, they're saying even that would be enough to get these huge benefits. I, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And it makes me think that maybe we're misunderstanding what the intervention actually is. I thought that the whole point of this was was a, it was a giant what if scenario. Like mm. if you had these sure. 19 interventions and you could introduce them universally at scale so that there was 100% coverage, what would be the theoretical yield uh, in terms of lives saved? That's mm. that's basically what they did. And, and you know, in a way, it is a cocktail napkin uh, exercise because it doesn't deal with any uncertainty assumptions whatsoever. Yeah. I do think I do think part of the problem we're having is we, you know, was we didn't totally 
get all the details and we're struggling. Well, and the impact on the outcomes that come from a quality intervention, that's the piece that I'm missing, yeah. right? Like, yeah, yeah. Do we know that just having the antibiotic around, you know, has some impact on on outcomes? And that's, that's, what, that's the piece that I don't quite understand. And that's what I was asking about because, you know, where did they get the information to assess the effect size? It was from Cochrane reviews of these interventions. But I can't imagine there's a Cochrane review of the intervention of, you know, having any antibiotics Stock available. Stock of dose. Yeah. Right. No antibiotics, right. I yeah. think it's it, the review presumably would be of the effectiveness of the interventions when applied. Right. Well, the, 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 the estimates are not based just on Cochrane reviews. It's, it's, it's systematic reviews, meta-analyses, well, randomized controlled trials, sure. and then the Delphi method, which for those who, who don't know, means you ask a bunch of experts what their opinion is. And it, you take the in average. In a more of, sophisticated way, but yes. You take the average of people's opinions. Slightly more um, sophisticated so than it's, that. It's yes. when you don't have agree. any actual data, you get opinions. So, Slightly more. Um, Complicated, complicated, but, but yes, basically I would agree. that is correct. <laughs> yes, basically, <laughs> and it's named after the oracles of ancient Greece, which I've, I think is sort of funny and ironic at the same time. So, because they were frequently wrong, the oracle of Delphi <laughs> was wrong. <laughs> the oracles of when? ancient Greece were uh, point, will stipulate point, did not have the to power. One example yes. where it was ever wrong. Okay, one more question. Well, can I can I just make the other point? Is that sorry that the w one of the the main weaknesses I felt in the analysis is that they they introduced all the interventions in parallel. And I think that is a problem because a baby who dies of tetanus cannot later be cured of neonatal sepsis. Yeah, so double counting was what I was worried about. Yeah, so I think that that, that, is, a, that is a legitimate concern about this is that you assume that they all like act independently, but that is, that is not true. And that things that, that occur earlier on have, you know, if a baby dies as a stillbirth, then the things downstream cannot have benefit mm -hmm, to mm -hmm, that child. Mm -hmm. the, the death has already been, the child has already been lost. And so I felt that that, that was a little bit maybe too simplistic. So what I would like to see is, is a, a more subtle analysis where they sort of layer them on top of each other and, and show how different sort of combinatorial inclusions of these different 19 interventions could lead to some sort of aggregate outcome that adjusts for that bias, that censoring of early deaths. I would agree with that. I mean, that was my concern as well. I also, the second concern that I have is, you know, the, the reality is we are where we are for a reason. We are in terms of quality of care. It's This is not an easy thing to change overnight. And so I always wonder about the wisdom of estimating the all or nothing that that we we implement it and, you know, we could save this many deaths is, is important to know, but realistically, no one's going to be able to do that overnight. And so, you know, w what if we could get from, you know, X percent to X percent, we could get from, well, not from X to X, X to Y. You get from 20% to 40%. How much, you know, how much benefit would we get there? And should we be starting to think about things that we can actually do as opposed to the ideal conditions? Not sure. Yeah, I, I found just the, and, and maybe I read this differently than the two of you, but that there was this argument being made for how maybe quality has been underappreciated and that the focus has been more on increasing coverage, mm -hmm. but that increasing coverage, you know, the impact of that will be limited unless we address quality. So in that, in that way, I feel like it was making, I don't know, I'm curious what you've, you've both done much more work in low and middle income countries, but whether there has been much more of an effort on, on more utilization rather than, than quality. 
I, 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 I see, I think, I think I see where you're going, Jennifer. And I, I feel again, that this comes back to this issue of the, you know, you know, the, the presence of a bag mask resuscitator at a clinic is not the same thing as someone knowing how to use it. It is not the same. Even if they have been trained, Mm -hmm. it is not the same. The fact that they took a course, a one-week course five years ago and have a bag mask resuscitator does not mean that they now currently know how to use the bag mask resuscitator. And so the implications are that these measures of quality are not sufficient conditions to ensure the interventions are used well. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I buy that. Okay, any other issues anyone wants to raise before I take the last word? To note that... I mean, I thought this was basically advocacy in disguise, which is fine. I feel like that this was an advocacy. This is sort of like an aspirational, if in a perfect world, what could we achieve? And it might might be like this. So I see, I see why you say that. I see, but I, I don't know that I'd want to label this advocacy. And the reason for that is the only way for a study like this to be done well, and I, I fully trust the motivations of the authors, would be to accept the fact that improving quality would have led to very little benefit or almost no benefit. And we would then show that that is not a place to invest our efforts. So uh, to me, it isn't, it, 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 it does guide us in terms of policy maybe, but I don't know that it's, that I would call that advocacy. Anyone want to fight me on that one? Nope. All right. So last word on this one. Um, so this is another PLOS medicine paper and the, Second paragraph of the discussion is the limitations, which, as you know, I really like. And I thought maybe that is required by PLOS Medicine, but I don't think so because the paper that we are going to talk about two weeks from now, which I read ahead on because I didn't want to wait two weeks until we come back here. I read it ahead too. You did? Yeah. What a coincidence. It's as if we're going to talk about- Me too. I couldn't wait. I just couldn't wait. It's like we're going to talk about it in 10 minutes, not two weeks. So weird. That one didn't have a strength and limitations of the second. So it doesn't seem to be a requirement of the journal. So I thought that was um, thought that was pretty great. All right. So let's move on to our second segment. So ma- many of our listeners may have heard about this dust up on Twitter or brouhaha or whatever you want to call this. Kerfuffle. Kerfuffle. When a group of, uh, they refer to themselves as leading publishers and nonprofit scientific societies in the United States, wrote a letter addressed directly to our leader, President Donald J. Trump, in relation to this, this essentially what is the Plan S that we've talked about many times on the show before, this idea that essentially we would require publishers to make everything open access and presumably at a reasonable cost if it is funded by Governments. So this was a European plan initially, but it sounds like maybe the U.S. is considering signing off on it. Yeah, you might have thought it was Plan S from outer space, but actually it's Plan S from Belgium. Plan S from Belgium. <laughs> it is Plan S, right? I didn't make that up. Just, I think so. Okay, I hope I didn't. I don't know what S stands for. Uh, Sans prix. Free. <laughs> Sans <French>? cost. <laughs> I don't know. I do not speak French. Superior. All right. So. They wrote this letter. So this is from a group of of publishers. It's signed by a long list of publishers, and it's a page and a half letter. I'm going to read just sort of the, the opening paragraph to you. 
And it goes as follows. Dear President Trump, the undersigned organizations represent the leading publishers and nonprofit scientific societies in the U.S. We write to you with deep concern regarding a proposed policy that has come to our attention that would jeopardize the intellectual property of American organizations engaged in the creation of high-quality peer-reviewed journals and research articles and would potentially delay the publication of new research results. The role of the publisher is to advance scholarship and innovation, fostering the American leadership in science that drives our economy and global competitiveness. As copyrighted works, peer-reviewed journal articles are licensed to users in hundreds of foreign countries, supporting billions of dollars in U.S. exports and an extensive network of American businesses and jobs. In producing and disseminating these articles, we make ongoing competitive investments to support the scientific and technical communities that we serve. And then they go on to say, as noted, the government is considering a policy that would essentially not allow us to create generous profits for ourselves and I assume stakeholders. I don't know if these are publicly traded companies. And there was a huge pushback. Nobody liked this. So this is signed by a bunch of societies, the New England Journal of Medicine, Elsevier, Walters Kluwer, Wiley, those are the big publishing houses, and then a whole bunch of societies like the American Medical Association, the American Society for Nutrition, American Counseling Association, on and on and on. I mean, so the letter is a page. Basically all of them. The Well, the Society for Epidemiologic Research. I don't think there's a single epi, nope. epi organization on here. I noticed that too. But hmm. four pages worth of, of signatories to this letter who all have a stake, obviously, in making money of this. I We don't need to, need to have a conversation about why this was a dumb idea, right? This is, was a particularly dumb idea, at least in terms of the, the, the backlash that they were going to get from the scientific community, who really has no sympathy for the people who are making tremendous profit off of this with very little, it seems to us, very little effort and investment, as they say they're making great investment. I'm speaking here of the publishing houses. I don't understand the the, the societies as well, but the, the publishing houses is what I'm particularly getting at. Except that they often publish their own journals. Well, certainly New England Journal of Medicine is, is self you know, they have their own publication set up and they are you know, the biggest and uh, biggest isn't the right word, but you know what I mean. Okay. So the question becomes, we all presumably agree that this was a bad idea, that this was going to make them look quite bad and I'm say greedy, that they were essentially just out there to protect their profits in a time when the public and in particular the scientific community is becoming increasingly unhappy with the model of the way academic publishing works. The question becomes, why did they do this, given that we can all agree this was a terrible PR move? Why did they do this? Hmm. It's interesting because they, the, the government-funded research is already sort of exempted from this process anyway, within the, the, the limits that, that within 12 months of uh, the acceptance of the publication of a paper, that it has to become open access automatically. Which, by the way, so which they acknowledge in this, that, that there is already a 12-month embargo and for, then— For and government then, funded. And then government-funded research must be—open access embargo isn't the right word, but, but, but behind a paywall, and then after 12 months, it must be open access. This mandate—they say this mandate already amounts to a significant government intervention in the private market, yeah. which I think is a clue as to why they wrote this letter. Yeah, or, yeah. I don't know. No, Jen. I agree. That was one of the most telling sentences in in the letter. The comment about government intervention in the in the private market. So yeah, I don't know why they wrote the letter, but I think that that it's, does it, provide a good clue. It struck me as very interesting because 
as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, okay, so what what is the the major private sector funder of research in in much of the world? And I I I think. And I'm pretty sure that this is true, that that would be the Gates Foundation. Well, what about drug companies? Um, but they don't. OK, yes, could be drug companies. But of course, yes, could be drug companies. But as a single entity, I think it would be the, the Gates Foundation. And the Gates Foundation already has a, a pretty generous policy that they will pay to have anything made open access for any journal that you get accepted into. And so they are presumably shelling out a fortune in publication fees to these journals. And that would be jeopardized under this. It would basically mean that the Gates Foundation no longer has to pay all this money to have Gates-funded research published in the public domain, which is what the Gates Foundation insists upon, Mm -hmm, rightfully. mm -hmm, mm That so, be open so this is a this is it would seem to be particularly directed at at them, yep. and I suppose also the pharmaceutical industry. Okay, so so my question on this is why hasn't why why do we think somebody hasn't come in and said look these these publishing houses are making huge amounts of money, the profit on on each article has got to be immense. They're charging two to four thousand, two to five thousand dollars for open access publication. Why hasn't somebody else snuck in and said, I can do 90% of what the big publishing houses do for your journal, but I can do it at a cost of $500 per article. That's something that would, you know, that, that wouldn't cause people nearly as much pain that, that people could probably scrape up. Uh, not everyone, lots of people, particularly in, in, in uh, lower income countries might have trouble scraping that up. But, but for, at least for, let's say for us, we probably could find a way to get together the $500 needed as opposed to the five that or 2000 or $5,000, which is a huge hit. You know, why, do we think there's any reason, given that there is so much profit to be made here, that somebody hasn't, and, and there are some, but on, on a global scale, on a larger scale, come in and undercut this market? Hmm. Um, and you don't think that, that, in a sense, that's what many of the so-called predatory journals are, are, are doing? Yeah, I'm looking for a non-predatory. I'm looking for somebody to come along and say, take your journal out of Elsevier, your reputable journal out of Elsevier. You'll continue to run it as, you know, in terms of the the editorial staff, you'll still have the, you know, but we will deal with the the back end, the the website, the formatting, all that sort of stuff, which is, I, I do acknowledge is a real cost and, and is a service that is provided for us that the, the, the manuscripts are edited uh, somewhat, they look reasonably nice, they come out, they are on a they get into the the PubMed database. They are online and findable. All that sort of stuff. That's a service that somebody is providing, and I, I'm fully understanding that somebody should be able to to mm. make a profit off that. It's just not that that shouldn't be making these exorbitant prices. Absolutely. I mean, I guess the thing Profits. that 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 that, are, that occurred to me recently when we were going through uh, a, an article submission is that like Lancet's ID, which was one of the the specialty journals in the Lancet Journal mm-hmm. family charges, I think, $5,000 per article, uh, which is a staggering amount of money to publish a paper, whereas PLOS Medicine charges you, I think, $2,500 or so, and PLOS One, which is in the same family of PLOS journals, only charges $1,500 per article. Mm-hmm. And, and so mm-hmm. there's, there's nothing intrinsically more complicated about publishing a paper in PLOS One than there is in Lancet ID. Mm-hmm. And so why is there a $3,500 difference in the publication charges? Surely know. it's not their crackerjack graphic designers uh, making all that difference because basically most of the, the work of creating the image and the look of the article is done by the authors. I agree with you. So right. Is it advertising? Is I mean, is that what drives the difference in pres- price prestige, between the... I think. 
Okay. I think it's prestige, simply. But isn't that related to their advertising, you know, what they're able to collect yeah, in advertising revenue? I don't revenue? know how advertising works because it's, you know, we, I don't really read journals anymore. So I don't see the advertising in the same way. I hadn't really thought about advertising as a, as a component of this. Chris, looks like you look like you have something to say. I'm, I'm just trying to remember because I've got a bunch of, of uh, Lancet, Global Health and Lancet ID article uh, magazine sitting on my desk. And I can't recall whether they also have print uh, advertisements in them, which would imply that they're getting, they have a second revenue stream, not just gouging the authors, but also taking money from, from largely pharmaceutical companies. <laughs> Okay. I think they do. I think the clinical journals still still do. I mean, that's my yeah, my I think impression. You're right. Yeah, I think you're right. Okay, so I here's my here's my theory on. I mean, it's not a it's it's pretty obvious theory as to why they wrote this. But let me just read to you. I'm just going to read to you some excerpts or, or, or phrases from this. Okay, let's hear it. Dear President Trump, start with that one. Colon. Uh, no, I'm just <laughs> dear President Trump. Billions of dollars in U.S. exports preparing to step into the private marketplace, mm-hmm. nationalize the valuable American intellectual property, mm-hmm. reducing exports and negating intellectual property, mm-hmm. significant government intervention in the private market, burden on taxpayers, forced to close, and American competitiveness. Mm-hmm. I think this was mm-hmm. the... Fox News version, you know, you want to you want to you want to advertise for being in the White House, you go on Fox News. I think they were writing this letter to who they said they were writing this letter to, and I think they were trying to influence the top by going after all the things that seem to be big issues in the news: intellectual property, China, nationalizing socialism, ta- you know, tax breaks, intervention in the private marketplace. I mean, I think this was really actually. To an, written to an audience of one. Yeah. So, so have any of the organizations that, that signed this letter responded to the backlash? That's in a good way? question. I, I, they probably have, and I, I haven't really been paying enough yeah. attention to it. But I, I just thought it was really pretty telling. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I'd also like to know fundamentally who really wrote this. Well, that's my point. And I think that's my point is I don't think the, <laughs> the societies wrote it. I think somebody working for these the three publishing houses mm-hmm. would have been the one to take the lead on this is my guess. Yes, I could be wrong about that. And that's how I think you end up with a letter that looks like it was written by lobbyists or I don't know which, you know, who does these sort of things. But anyway, that is uh, anything else anyone wants to add before we move on? Mm, well, I, I just would like to, to point out that the argument that, that having paper use of articles is not a very effective way of protecting American intellectual property because presumably if you're worried that the Chinese are stealing all our clever little secrets, they can pay the $30 too to get the article online. Yep. I, I, that just seems like the, really a preposterous argument. So, I would agree with you. Yeah. I would agree with you completely. All right, shall we move on to our third segment? Our amazing yes. music. Sure. All right. Anyone uh, volunteering to go first this week? I'll go first. Sure. Great. Get in there, Chris. So I was really impressed with Greta Thunberg mm. being uh, named uh, Time Magazine uh, Person of the Year. Yeah. I think she's, she's just amazing. awesome. She's amazing. She's just awesome. And one of the things I learned about her, which I did not know until this Christmas holiday when the Time Magazine thing came out, is that she, that she has Asperger's yeah, syndrome. I did know that. Uh, which is, for those who don't know, is a is a is a considered to be a milder form of autism on the autism spectrum. 
So autism is this sort of condition where um, in its milder forms and major forms, it's, it's sort of a deficit of the ability to read personal interactions and, and read people, read their emotions and react to them uh, responsibly. And so that deficit has, assume, has been assumed to apply not just to interpersonal relationships, but also to relationships or sort of understanding sort of macro trends in terms of s- sort of like societal beliefs, societal attitudes. But that assumption that those two deficits would go in tandem has never really been tested. Hmm. And so this group actually tested that. And um, this is a, a neat little paper that I found in PNAS, which was just published in September, and the lead author was Gol Witzer, G-O-L-L-W-I-T-Z-E-R, which is called Autism Spectrum Traits Predict Higher Social Psychological Skill. So social psychological skill is this this separate phenomenon. It's like sort of the ability to sort of see how, I, I guess it would be to sort of systematize things that are happening in population interactions as opposed to interpersonal interactions. Okay, so rather than being able to say, you know, you're you, Jennifer, looking at me skeptically and clucking your tongue, and and that's because I've said something that had irritated you, uh, I would like if, if I had Asperger's humor, I would probably be a little bit blind to that. But what I might say is that when I see when I'm in a movie theater and people get up and leave, that's probably because the movie people are offended by the movie, and so you're sort of applying logic more to sort of understanding personal behaviors than you are reading people's emotions, reading their faces, hmm. reading the nuances in voice, hmm. and so it's a different way of, of, of sort of seeing the interactions in people. And so what they wanted to know is like, if you have autism spectrum disorder, how well do you rate on personal interaction scales, which has already been documented versus on this sort of social psychological skill? Mm-hmm. And it turned out that, that people with mild degrees of autism, and this was done through an online uh, survey, so there's some limitations about this, uh, did not actually have deficits in social psychological skills at all. In fact, they were slightly better than the average. Really? So it appeared that on average, those with sort of mild autism may indeed have deficits in terms of, in, of being able to read each other interpersonally, but systematize their understanding of how societies work to a slightly better degree than wow. people who don't have autism. That's really sort cool. Of the, it, it sort of felt to me like this may be an example of where we sort of assume that autism spectrum is necessarily a bad thing, when in fact all these behaviors are tremendously complicated it's, and in fact may be good in some settings and deleterious and other settings. We shouldn't assume that it's all one way or the other. And I, I just but found this different. article to be mm-hmm. to be fascinating and sort of provocative. Yeah. Now, the effect of the magnitude, the magnitude of this this effect was was uh, was quite small. It was like the slope was five percent, so it wasn't like you know a straight up line. Um, whereas with uh, in terms of their ability to read social you know personal emotions, there was a really steep downward mm-hmm. curve mm-hmm. based on how severe they they rated on the the AS spectrum quiz. Nonetheless. Uh, it felt to me like this this opened the door to sort of saying that maybe there's something a little bit more nuanced, perhaps in the same way as we wonder, like, why are so many people depressed when depression seems like such a like a terrible condition? How can it be that 10 percent of the American population at any given time is depressed? Surely evolution would have weeded that out. And the same thing with anxiety it would make you think that perhaps under some certain senses being slightly dysthymic or slightly anxious is probably adaptive. Uh, and that's why it hasn't been weeded out. Mm. And so this may be the same kind of thing where there's a, there is an upside as well. Really interesting. I you- can just related to that. I can give a plug for, I don't, I think it's a, a movie maybe on Netflix or something. You can find it, but it's Asperger's R Us. Have you heard about this? No. It's about a comedy troupe of, I think four guys who all are, on the spectrum and they 
I don't, they're discovered somehow, but they end up going on a U.S. tour. And it's a fascinating oh, little window. It's, and it's heartwarming and they're really funny. And I think it, it goes right to your point of, of there being all of these benefits that, that um, maybe people are unaware of. I really, really enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, Jen, what do you got for us? So I'm going to talk about memories. Do you want me to sing? I was hoping someone would offer. Can cats? you? Can you? Yeah. Did you see you cats? Want? Oh my! So, Have you, so better did, than seeing cats is reading the reviews of cats. Yeah. So I did. You know, I saw it as a kid, and then when it came through Boston, several, I don't, maybe even a year ago now, I took my daughter to see it, and I will say, I don't know that it's aged particularly well, like the leg warmers and spandex and everything, but when memories, it did give me chills. The woman's voice was was amazing. But you haven't seen the movie, which is what everyone is <laughs> no. so, so disturbed I, by. Yeah, I'm not going to my, see that. My favorite, see the movie. my favorite review of the movie was, it said, I preface this with the fact that I'm not a cat person. After seeing this movie, I'm not sure I'm a movie person. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. No, I won't be seeing, I won't be seeing the movie. But okay. this, this story is not about cats. It's about Flatworms and mollusks. Oh, cool! Um, Not nearly which, as... Yeah, which I prefer. Okay. I think to cats. Right. I like cats. So this is an article that appeared on the online magazine Nautilus. It was posted back on December thirteenth. The textbook wisdom is that memories are stored in synapses, and this is one of those things that I just assumed that we would know much more about this than we actually do. I would have assumed too. Um, but there's this very interesting. What was his background? He was a a psychology professor at the University of Michigan way back in the fifties, James McConnell. And he had done all of this research on these freshwater flatworms called planaria, and the reason he studied them. Two reasons. First of all, they have a true synaptic nervous system. So Mm -hmm. that makes them interesting for a worm. But they also have these amazing abilities to regenerate. So you can apparently chop up these worms into 50 pieces and all 50 pieces will become complete, fully functioning organisms again. Isn't that amazing? So cool. Yeah. So Hmm. I remember doing this in high school biology, by the way. Chopping up worms? Chopping up a uh, planaria, yeah. Oh, really? And watching them, have them, watching them regenerate. It was so cool. Yeah. I mean, it, it took like a week or so, but they, they totally did it. So, okay, so huh. this leads to, so when you, let's say you chop one of those little guys in half and you've trained the full worm to do something. So... Wait, you can train a worm oh, to yeah. do something? Absolutely. So this guy trained them, the early experiments were getting them, it involved some shocking So he was trying to get them to associate light with getting a little electric shock. And um, sure enough, he was able to do that. So he had these trained worms, and then he would chop them in half. And the head end, not surprisingly, would retain its training. But when the tail end grew ahead, it also knew to associate light with being shot. Yes. That is super cool. So that was this first kind of clue into maybe your memories aren't stored into, in the synapses. They're they're stored in some other way. Well, and then there was this Swedish neurobiologist, Holger Haydn. He had suggested way back in the 1960s that memories were actually stored in the RNA of neuron cells. So in response to this idea, this McConnell from Michigan took advantage of the fact that these flatworms are actually cannibals, and he 
chopped up some trained worms and fed fed them to untrained worms. And sure enough, they too knew to recoil in response to the light and even would retain training to things like getting through a maze, much more complicated tasks. And I assume he checked beforehand that they didn't have this experience. They They don't go into all the controls here. But but then he feeds them the worm and then they, whoa. So this is like like that show Heroes and that evil villain Skylar who would eat all the victims with and then would absorb their abilities. It came, it, clearly the idea came from this, this obviously. So cool. Yeah. So, but this guy retired in, okay, so first of all, he tended to self-publish his work. So he had his own journal called the Worm Runner's Digest. Yep. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. In, in addition to his research studies, he also published some sci-fi humor and cartoons in there. So it wasn't all taken super seriously. He retired in 1988 and then it kind of, this kind of fizzled until recently. So this is not new information. He was was doing all this like in the 50s and 60s. So a couple of people have now picked up on this. So I'll just give you one example. So David Glansman is a neurobiologist at the University of California, Los Angeles. And he works with a mollusk called aplysia. Anyway, it's basically a big inky sea slug, Mm. um, but it has a very simple nervous system. And he was shocking these mollusks to train them to sustain this reflex that they have, which is basically to, they have what they call a siphon. It's this little breathing tube between the gill and the tail. And he wanted it to extend that reflex to withdraw the siphon when it was touched. So basically they would train them to do this. They would notice that during the training process, there would be all this new growth in the synapse. Hmm. He would then destroy that synaptic growth. They would then have unlearned this behavior. So consistent with the idea that the memory is stored in the synapses. synapses. But then they would retrain them and notice new growth there. And then the snails behaved once again as if they knew how to respond to that stimuli. So it didn't seem like it was really stored in the old synapses. It was it was something that was that remained there. Hmm. So he's also buying into this idea that it's really stored in the RNA. So they actually extracted RNA from these synaptic regions, destroyed the synapse, then injected this RNA into untrained mollusks. Oh, mollusks, yeah. And sure enough, they, <laughs> the ones who had been injected with RNA from a trained mollusk were able to, to show this behavior, whereas the, the ones with RNA from untrained did not. And so they, you know, I mean, this is really cool because it changes, kind of changes the paradigm about memory, but also they are optimistic that it could have some sort of health implications for, for folks with dementia or memory loss. Wow, cool. So in the future, I wouldn't have to learn calculus. I could just have it injected? Injected. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that is so cool. <laughs> that is super cool. That I am really impressed. That is cool. All right. So I've got a short one, but it relates to what we all do. So you all write papers, do you not? Right. Presumably you do it with other authors. Mostly. How do you decide the order of authorship? Coin flip. 
Coin flip? No. That would be so much easier, but no. Uh, first person, the person who wrote the paper is the first author. Yep. The person who helped the most, the second author, and the person who got the funding and sort of mentored the others is the last author. And in between, Everyone I don't care. Nobody I, cares. Then I don't care. I find it's just never that neat. It's never that tidy. Exactly. It is. It, there's always problems. So this was pointed out to me on Twitter by Jess Roman, a colleague of ours in Berlin. If you're listening, Jess, hi. Thank you for sending us this. So this was posted on the interwebs by... Uh, Sylvan DeVille, who wrote a piece on how to determine the order of authorship in an academic paper. And the way that this person determined the different ways that you could do this was uh, by looking at other papers to see what was actually being done out there in the literature as some examples. And so then most of the time, you know, I mean, this, this wasn't a scientific paper. This wasn't a thorough. It was just some examples. But most of the time, people are going with the usual approaches of mutual agreement based on the you know, number of hours people are using or you know, degree of contribution. But then there were a bunch of really interesting ones that were found. So uh, some of which these are linked to. So you can go and see where it's written and explains what it is they did. And others, there's no link. So I don't know exactly what it means. But obviously there is alphabetically. So that's one that we have used before in some of our papers. Uh, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, an awkward that's one. That's why I changed my name to Aardvark. That is exactly <laughs> why Christopher Aardvark is here in the studio today. By order of birthright and degree date, hmm. the Galaxy Quest style, never give up, never surrender. I assume that means a fight to the death. Yes. By uh, Rock, Paper, Scissors. That is one of my, definitely one of my favorites. Uh, by Whose Turn It Was. Uh, by Flip of a Coin or any kind of random method. Uh, using a random number generator? Using a random number generator. And then a few of my last ones of my favorites. I don't even know what this means exactly, but by scramble competition for peat flavored spirit. What exactly? I assume that's a race. Oh, it's whiskey, right? Scotch. Race, Single malt scotch. But is that a race for whiskey? Read it again. Or, scramble competition for peat flavored spirit. Scramble. Does that mean you get Not scrabble? Scramble. Yeah. They decided by a 25-game cricket series held at Imperial College Field Stadium during the summer of 1973. <laughs> I would always be last. By that. tennis match and by random fluctuation in the euro-dollar exchange rate. I don't know even know how that would work, but that is those are uh, my favorite ones. Very nice. So anyway, if you are out there and you have used any of these methods, let us know about it. So arm that is, how about arm wrestling? Is arm, arm wrestling is not on the list, but I do think that is a it is a, sure it's a been done. great way to go. But I would always come in. I guess I get or, to be last author thumb, that way. Thumb war. Thumb war. Thumb war. Yeah. thumb war is another good one. So that is the end of our program. If you've got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you could tweet us at, at @pophealthyx, or you can tweet me at, at @profmatfox, or Chris at id.gill, or Jen at, at Jennifer R. Ryder. The triple R is in there. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed it, and we hope you will download our next episode.